What is up, my friends? Welcome back to another episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and this is episode number 24. Today's episode is super, super special for a bunch of reasons. And the first of them is the guest. His name is Trevor Twining. Trevor and I have interacted quite a bit over Twitter and on the Coworking Google group, and every time Trevor's had something to share, I've been impressed. So I was excited to have an opportunity to actually sit down with him and have an extended conversation because I had a pretty good feeling that Trevor had good things to share and I was bound to learn something. The second reason I'm excited about this episode is because of the topic we're talking about, and that is running a co-working space as a co-op. I'm not talking about just a cooperative mindset. I'm talking about actually registering the business as a co-op where your members share in the ownership of the space, the actual business ownership and decision-making in returns and the effect that has on the way you run a business. And I'll be honest with you, there are reasons that Indie Hall hasn't been a co-op, but it was great to hear from Trevor about his experience in running Cowork Niagara as a co-op for the last two years. And you'll hear near the end when I ask him for his advice on whether or not I should turn Indie Hall into a co-op. And he gave me some really good things to think about. So even if you have no intention of changing your co-working space into a co-op or starting it as a co-op from the start, there's lessons in this conversation about how you can communicate, solve problems, and include your community in the decision-making process, both for buy-in as well as avoiding problems entirely. This is a really cool conversation. It turned out even better than I expected. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Trevor Twining of Cowork Niagara. All right, what's going on, Trevor? It is so great to finally have you on the Coworking Weekly Show. Alex, it's awesome to be here. I am such a fanboy. Um, it's <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of really cool being on here talking to you. Well, hopefully, what comes out of this is that we can we're just going to have an awesome conversation. Trevor, can you introduce yourself and what you're involved in? Sure. My name's Trevor Twining, and I'm the president of Cowork Niagara, which is a co-working space based in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada right now. And uh, uh, we have a membership of about 70 independents. We call ourselves the home of the independent workforce here in Niagara. And, um, and basically, our space is largely oriented towards uh, freelancers and other independent workers. And so we've been op- in operation for two years. We're just having our second anniversary. And Congratulations. Uh, we, thank you very much. And we've been cash flow positive for the last six months. So double congratulations. Thanks, man. It's all, it's all about the, the community first bit. And uh, a lot of that I learned from listening to, to you on the, uh, uh, on the Google, um, uh, on the Google group and then your blog and, uh, uh, and stuff like that. So like when I say a fanboy, I mean like, you know, going back as, as far as I can remember anyway. So. I love hearing that. More importantly, I love when people actually take that stuff that we put out there and and run with it. Wow, big milestones. And, you know, I, I always say that a co-working space can't, you can't really know what's going to happen until you've passed the two-year mark. Uh, and the fact that you're at the two-year mark and you're already cash flow positive, uh, I think is a great sign and that you're going going hard at the right stuff. And like you said, it's the community first. The reason that I wanted to have a conversation with you was started from the co-working Google group, which I know you and I are both fans of, we are active on, and you kicked off a thread about co-ops, the co-op model 
that I had not seen on the Google group or really many places before. It's come up in sort of corners of conferences, but it's always been more of a, a philosophical conversation about how co-ops are cool. Whereas you brought in something where you said, look, I think this model is really aligned with co-working, not just that it's cool. And oh, by the way, we've been doing it for two years. So uh, ask me anything. And you fielded a really amazing conversation. So I thought, let's take that conversation to the next level and get a little more detail. So can we can we go back to the beginning? And I'm curious about a couple of things. I'm curious about other than finding, I doubt you just like randomly found my website and said, hmm, I'm going to start a co-working space. I'd love to know what your introduction to co-working was that made you think this is something that I want to do. And Maybe then we take a turn into how uh, at that point were you introduced to to the co-op models that that you guys actually implement at Cowork Niagara? Were those things interconnected in any way? Absolutely not. And and what's really interesting is that the the co-op part came almost at the very end of us exploring or making the decision to to open up the space and how we were going to incorporate and and all that stuff. So so really I. I've been a freelancer remote worker for a very long time, since early 2001. And I've had some clients in the States and stuff. And so I've come down and, uh, and visited. One of them was in San Francisco. And we spent a little bit of time at uh, Citizen Space. And this is going back like 2007, somewhere around there anyway. And I came back to Niagara where none of that sort of stuff existed. And I, I basically said, we have to have this here in Niagara. Um, there, there's so much good that can come from this. And I waited and I waited, <laughs> you know, uh, nobody built it for me, man. And I was so ticked off. So eventually I realized that if this was going to happen at all, that, you know, because I wanted it so much, I was the one who needed to to do it. And so I started just... We didn't have like a big meetup culture or anything. So I started just going to the events that I could and talk to talk to people about what was, you know, what was going on in my head. And they were like, I really want to do this too. And so we'd um, we'd like, all right, figure out what the next step is. So we'd, you know, we'd set a, a, a meetup and we'd find other people. And sometimes we'd, you know, meet together casually in cafes and just get our work done, you know, and stuff like that. Step by step, this sort of group started to emerge and we we started to explore whether or not we could do a space. And um, basically from there, we said, all right, if we're going to do this, we need to make sure that we can work together. And so we, we started the, you know, the weekly jellies at a, at a local cafe. I actually went to a cafe downtown and I spoke to the owner. I was like, when is the, the, the slowest day that you have? Because <laughs> I want to bring some people in. Right. And you know, they're going to buy coffee, they're going to buy, you know, lunch or whatever, but we're going to work there for a few hours. And I want you to be okay with that. So when's the slowest day that, you know, that we could do that and make a difference in your bottom line. And that was really important because it allowed us to establish like a long time, long-term relationship with, um, with that cafe. And basically that helped us form the, the, the core of our community because we always had somewhere to meet. Who was in that core? What did that core actually look like? So there was there was about fifteen of us to to 
to start. I mean, it started off much uh, smaller, but we had um, we had a couple web developers, we had uh, a search engine guy, we had a couple copywriters, um, we had uh, a couple of people that were just doing uh, sales and uh, like just general. One of the guys was a copier salesperson, and he just hung out with us as a way to sort of break up his workday. And he, so we we basically met uh, once a week. And it was, it was largely more social because we weren't seeing each other all the time. So it was like a time to catch up and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, a lot of the things that you hear about co-working where it's like you, you know, when you have problems, you get unstuck sooner because people have been there before and you get that shared experience. And, uh, and you also, you have these, um, you just feel like you're, you know, well, I was just listening to episode 11 not too long ago. You feel like you're part of that community, right? And it's even before we had the space, we started to build that that community. And people, like you just look back and people just started giving a damn about, you know, about each other. And and that was that was really how it all started. So I'm curious, is there anything that you did, What what sort of, questions were you asking you know what prompted the conversation about an actual space you were going and and working in jellies and, and things like that was the space conversation already happening at that point and the jelly was sort of a let's see if we can actually work together or or what was sort of the order of operations there? so the order of operations was i had identified people who were also remote or independent workers and felt isolated and they knew that they wanted to do something to work more closely together, but still maintain their independence. From there, we, we identified that a space was possible. We had visited some other spaces in the meantime, right? Like Toronto is actually very close to us. It's, uh, it's about an hour away. So, and there's a bunch of different types of spaces there. So we can, you know, we went there and, and checked out a, a, a bunch of different uh, spaces and, uh, pretty soon everybody in the group was was um, mostly aligned on the fact that a space would definitely be valuable but i said you know before we do that let's let's keep trying it with the the weekly uh, meetups to prove that we can actually work together right cuz if we you know 3 months in we can't stand each other then why are we going to get a space <laughs> and and not stand each other right yeah 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 so we, um, so basically we, we knew going in that we were, if this worked, we were going to get a space. So at that point you start researching actual spaces and modeling out how you can actually pay for this. And I'm, I'm taking a stab in the dark and guessing that may have been when you started exploring the co-op model as a way to accomplish that. So it's it's really neat because we were actually going to set up as a uh, a not for profit first, and I'm so glad that we didn't because it was it was absolutely the worst thing that we could have possibly done. Why would a nonprofit have been bad for you guys? Um, because somebody else would have been paying uh, the bill mostly, which means the decision making power goes to them. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right? Okay, so. so- so we were basically we had uh, we were sharing the idea all over the place, and we applied for we didn't apply for funding. We were talking about you know what sorts of funding was was available that we might be able to apply for, 
And we had, um, we had a couple of people say, you know, you should go after this, you know, particular pot of money and you should actually think big. And, you know, the, the plan that you've got is basically too small. You need to go, you need to go larger and, uh, you know, and they'll totally buy in. Right. And I should have saw the writing on the wall, but we, we started down that road anyway. And basically at the, uh, at the end of it, we, we got further and further away from the type of space that we envisioned because we were trying to satisfy the, you know, the quote unquote funding requirements. And it took a long time to get there. We basically burned through about six months constantly revising uh, this plan. And then we finally had a meeting with the actual funding organization and we, we started pitching the idea and they said, yeah, I just don't see the fit. So, ouch, like, yeah. So all that time was basically wasted. And so there was a small sort of core group of about five of us who, um, who were really leading this at first. And we got together after hearing that and we were kind of defeated and I was like, we, we can still do this. We don't need them to do any of this. We just need to figure out what sort of structure we can implement so that this crap doesn't happen to us ever again. Because basically even before we started, we almost sold out on our principles, right? So I wanted to, to have a structure that inserted, you know, this, this idea of shared ownership and community right into our DNA right? Our corporate DNA so that it could never be extracted or, or basically, you know, compromised. Right. So that's what I was trying to do. And so we started looking for models for that. And, you know, so we looked at, um, uh, we looked at just setting up a, you know, a regular corporation and basically we didn't really like that because somebody, it could be possible for somebody who put, you know, the lion's share of money in to have the lion's share of the decision-making. Right. So, and in most cases, that's not a problem, but sometimes it can be. And so we weren't, we were leaning towards that model, but we weren't happy with it. But one of the people who was meeting with us on a regular basis, they were starting up a food co-op here in, uh, in St. Catharines. And uh, she said to me, you know, have you ever considered a co-op model for, for the business? Because, you know, I'm hanging out with you guys all the time and you guys are practically a co-op. And I was like, a what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what's that? Exactly. And so we had a couple of conversations about, you know, what that, what that is and what it might look like. And so basically through those conversations, I, I saw that all of the, all of the parts of the co-op structure that relate to membership and mutual ownership and, and all those sorts of things, they aligned with everything that we were trying to do structurally but we would have needed to come up with like bylaws for, or, you know, policies to, you know, to implement, you know, that sort of thing, or just rely on the, you know, on the, the, I guess the culture to take care of those things. But, you know, here, all those things were basically available for free in the co-op model. Um, but we didn't know anything about it. And so, uh, so I guess that sort of, you know, takes us to the next stage of the, you know, the conversation, you know, how did we, how did we actually pull it off? Yeah, so you you bring this conversation back to the community. It's, it sounds like you've done a bunch of homework on what this looks like. It aligns with the conversations you've been having. What does the presentation of the co-op model to the community actually look like? So 
at its at its essence, what becoming a cooperative business means is that every member is is an owner in the business with an equal say in its operation. Now, that doesn't mean that every single decision that you know that we make is run by committee, but at a at a high level. So when you're charting like the you know the general direction of the organization, every every member has an equal voice in what happens. Operationally, we run pretty much like any other business. I'm the I'm the president, so I make the the lion's share of the operational decisions. And in instances where, basically, when we are, you know, plotting sort of you know not general direction, but um, you know monthly activities and stuff like that, I have a board of directors that I work with. So it's it's very similar to a lot of other businesses or even even nonprofits out there, but. Every single person who decides that they join this community is mutually uh, responsible and mutually benefits by the participation in that community. And for us, that was like the, you know, the 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 secret sauce. And once we once we shared that with everybody, they it it just it seemed to to just gel together, and everybody understood what we were trying to do, and ultimately how it um, how it benefited them and us collectively as a whole. This is so, so interesting. And uh, simultaneously very familiar and oddly alien. And I'm trying to reconcile <laughs> what the difference between the two is because the what you're essentially describing is, again, feels very familiar to me in terms of how we make decisions. Ultimately, it becomes your job as the president of this organization, of this community, uh, which are sort of deeply intertwined to represent them accurately and fairly. And so it's just as much of a job about listening as anything else. I guess one of the things that's super interesting about this and why I think this is so aligned with co-working as a, as a successful model is because unlike most businesses, your effectively your customers, the people who pay in, aren't just receiving in return some value, although they are. That's just the baseline. But there's exactly. this other layer of value, and uh, and that comes from a sense of, and in some cases more than a sense of, an actual layer of control, uh, as as well as is there a. Is there a dividend that people get paid back when you say ownership? You know, you said you're, you're cash flow positive, which means you're on your way towards profitable. As yep. Cowork Niagara starts throwing off a profit, how does that make its way back through the organization to, to the members? So we would um, uh, basically at our annual general meeting, we would, uh, we would announce that we have a, uh, a surplus. And as a board, we'd basically decide how we're going to, uh, like any board, how we're going to distribute that, that surplus. So it would likely be, um, especially short term, it would be, we're likely to reinvest it because we, sure. we, you know, we have some things that, that we want to do, but we could take a portion of that and say, knock everybody's, um, uh, monthly costs down by $10 a month. If we, you know, if we had enough uh, left over at the, you know, at the end of the year. So to do the investments that we wanted and, you know, knock the, uh, the, the, the prices down, we could just decide to leave it as it is and hold it in surplus in case we, you know, we have some, uh, some hard times. Right. So, so basically 
I would have a discussion with the, uh, you know, the board about, you know, what some of the options are. The board would decide on what the most appropriate recommendation is. And then the entire membership would vote on that at the annual general meeting. So. All right. You just said a magic word that's always scared me about organizations like this and it's voting. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the voting process and decisions, like give me an example of a decision that's made by a vote. How are those conversations run? You know, does that go, does that go as horribly as I imagine it going? I'm guessing the answer is no. Absolutely not. So the, um, we've really only had one, uh, vote, you know, since we've been a, an entity. And that is, uh, we're, we're just coming up to our second annual general meeting. And the first vote was who we were going to appoint as our auditors. Um, we're small enough that we don't need to have our books externally audited, but we do need an internal audit to, to show our, uh, transparency. Right. So we had to, to do that. So we had a couple of nominations and, and basically we, uh, we had to deal with it, uh, that way. We didn't have a surplus last year. We were we were a little bit in the uh, in the hole, and so we asked some. Uh, we asked to basically people to step up and, and offer some member loans, and uh, and so now this year we're in a position to start repaying those back. And the the voting that happens like at the board level, it's it's really just you know it's more of a. I I can't even think of an issue where there's been any sort of you know uh, friction. It's just here's the things that we got to do. Who's going to, who's going to take ownership of it. And, um, you know, people, they're all mutually invested, right? So this is, this is kind of the grease that keeps making these wheels go round is that everybody, everybody has a common interest. It's a shared interest as well. Right. And holding this up for anyone would, would not just, you know, harm others, but it, it likely harms that person as, as well. So I, I don't even really have any, good examples. I mean, we, we voted on whether or not we were going to open up the podcast studio. Right. And it was just, I think this is a good idea, but you know, we're going to take up a portion of the space in order to do it. The, the space comes down, you know, and it's pop up. Right. So we can tear it down and set it up as needed. Uh, is everybody okay with that? And it was like, yeah, let's do this. So the uh, is it a majority vote is it a consensus vote how does that work so we operate by consensus so we basically which means you're looking to get approval across the board and uh, we basically have a fallback that if uh, consensus can't be reached then it's a majority vote got it got it the thing that i i actually even hearing you describe this the thing that stood out to me is there are so many times where a decision is going to be made and I was just talking about uh, this with actually one of our members, housemates, who was visiting Indy Hall last night. He was talking about within his organization, which is a financial institution, actually, and a fairly small one, relatively speaking, that they're very good at having conversations about you know work-related, I'll call it conflict, disagreements. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're doing what you should be doing and here's why things like that but when it comes to things that are a little more personal those more personal issues people aren't quite as comfortable doing it and because of that a lot of conversations end up happening out of band and people feel like they they feel stress and they feel they get worked up over decisions they view organizational decisions as being stupid or undermining them simply because they don't understand all of the context of the decision-making itself. And once 
you sort of retroactively explain, here's why the decision was made. Now that you understand that is, you know, is that actually make sense? They go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. So the thing that I love about the model that you're describing is it sort of forces that conversation, that otherwise potentially hard conversation to be had upfront. It's going to happen either way in the case of a successful decision, but it sort of f- keeps you from accidentally or intentionally burying a decision so that you might have to deal with the consequences of it later. It sort of generates a more of a, a culture of an upfront conversation, which again feels deeply resonant with me and ends up being the solution to the vast majority of problems that I see, not just in co-working spaces, but organizations of all different kinds and sizes and scales and all around the world. They, the biggest problems come down to somebody didn't talk to somebody when they should have. And you've got an oh organization God, yeah. that is designed to avoid that problem. I think that might be the most valuable component of this model that, that you've described yet. I think you're onto something. And I think the other part of that is that just culturally we're, I, I think many co-working spaces are aligned to, to operate that way. We have the added benefit of this, you know, sort of being, you know, inserted into, like I said, our corporate DNA. And uh, so there's, we don't have to rely on just everybody getting the culture. It's the way that the, that the business has to operate, right. In order for it to, to, to live up to its corporate mandate. Right, 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 right. There's something else interesting that I remember your Google group post about sort of lessons learned in the experience. There was something that stood out to me about how, so there's two separate models here. There is a co-op member, like a co-op membership, and then there is an additional co-working membership. Can you explain how that breaks down? And I'm actually especially interested in A, why that's different, and B, the people who have bought in as as sort of co-owners through the co-op model, but don't actually use the space. Do you have a sense of why that, why that happens at all? Why, if you're not going to use the space, why would you buy into this? So I think it's, um, I think it's really similar to the uh, community mem- memberships that you guys offer at Indie Hall in that there is, there are some people who still want to be part of that community, but for one reason or another don't or can't necessarily use the space. So let me take a step back. We've basically got the uh, the, the membership. So it's an annual membership, and uh, that's what gives you basically your voting rights and membership in the in the organization. And it basically entitles you to. I mean, you get one day a month in the space, which if you're you're any sort of you know other than a casual coworker, it's it, you know it's not enough, and you're gonna you're gonna need a, a or want a subscription. We have a number of member only events that uh, that we do, and it entitles people to go to those. And um, we have uh, one of the big things about our space is that uh, we have the the largest number of business professional development events. Um, we have the largest number of those um, for any any organization in Niagara. So we're focusing on, on basically events that, uh, that really help people, you know, grow their, for us, it's personal practices, right? But it, um, a lot of what we do applies to, you know, small businesses or solopreneurs or, you know, anybody, uh, anybody basically in business for themselves. And so those people, uh, they want to come out to that sort of stuff, but they don't necessarily use the um, the space because some of them have their own offices or, you know, actually, you know, work from home, you know, that, uh, that sort of stuff. And uh, we started off small. So our capacity, like we've got 70 members, but our 
capacity in the uh, in the space is uh, only about thirty people at any one time, and uh, uh, you know we've got a year left in our lease where we're looking to grow. We've got a few ideas for for how to uh, how to make that happen, um, but we we wanted to get into a space that we could we could be sure that we could afford right so that was the that was the mindset um, behind that the other folks who are members are those who who really just want to support what we're doing they see the they see the impact that we're having um, in the community uh, generally like we've we've been tracking the the numbers with a lot of our uh, independence and last year our members reported like a 30% increase in their in their income from the year before just from wow. these mechanisms being in place and, and and working and that was that was an incredible number for us like we we went back and we asked the question twice right and um <laughs> <laughs> like are, are you sure <laughs> like did did you you know, did you move a zero here by accident? Do we need to do, teach a class on basic math? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, but sure enough, that's, uh, that, those were the numbers. And um, when, you know, when these systems sort of all come to place, all come together to, to make that sort of perfect storm, you can, you can do some really uh, wild things in your community in a very short period of time. What you're describing there reminds me a lot of what I always you just gave the pitch that the Chamber of Commerce should give and then actually execute on. Yeah. Right. I, like I don't. Is there a Chamber of Commerce in Niagara? Um, there is, uh, and um, they. I'm not asking you to call them out. No, by no, no. Way. Um, we uh, we work closely um, with them. I still I still feel like they don't understand us yet, though. Um, and, uh, and that's okay. Cause you know, we're still, uh, we can do, uh, what we do without them totally understanding us. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of been my philosophy as well. About once a year, our local chamber of commerce, I feel like what happens is, is they get a new membership director or something like yeah. that. And the membership director has a list of businesses that just haven't signed on yet. And they approach me with the same half-assed pitch for what they do. And I ask them, why I would need any of the things that they do and they can't explain it nearly not even a quarter of as well as you just did. Uh, and, and even if they could, I would want to see demonstrated results from them doing it. You've done that. And, you know, I, I think you're hundred percent right that you can coexist happily and not even take away from each other. But I think that if there's anyone out there that's listening and represents sort of an economic development force or maybe even a chamber of commerce and what I just said hurts a little bit, uh, take that to heart and think about not just not just what we're talking about here in terms of a co-op model, but you know, think about what a co-op model encourages in terms of the buy-in that a chamber of commerce wishes it could have let alone the results that came out on the other side. So, and, and what's really interesting about what you said there was that the um, uh, uh, some of our uh, some of our members include the economic development offices of not just the city but the like the the region. Um, uh, so, uh, I think the U.S. counterpart would be the the county, right? So we've got the yeah. we've got the city economic development, but then we've also got the the regional economic development, and they're members in the space, and they come out and they participate, and they see the impact that we're having, specifically at the you know at the freelancer independent worker um, level, and they're really excited about what we're doing because you can't lay off three thousand freelancers, you know. 
This is so interesting and a, a super important conversation. I think, I mean, I think about it a lot in the States because it's tied to a, a lot of bigger, bigger issues, but I think this is a, a global shift in, in what you just said uh, so subtly, but I think is so, so important that when you're talking about workforce resilience, instead of trying to invite a company that's going to bring a hundred jobs, 500 jobs, a thousand jobs to create smaller networks of more resilient independence. And, and honestly, like in a way, and in a very important way, I think, although this sounds new because we're talking about people who can work on laptops and cell phones and things like that, that's how business used to be done up until about 100, 150 years ago. That was the dominant way business was done. There was no such thing as large scale businesses or, or was very rare. Yeah. So I think this is more of a what's old is new sort of shift. And the thing that makes me most excited about that is that means we've got history books to look at and learn lessons oh, from. Oh, and models. And yeah. So, um, and the, oh geez, there's a, there's a whole bunch of uh, historical connections to to what we're doing too. Like down, downtown St. Catharines used to be um, uh, uh, the uh, economic center for for the region, right? Like so, we're we're stuck right between both Great Lakes, and uh, so a lot of shipping stuff, you know, used to happen here. And downtown St. Catharines is like one of the locations for for where it all started, right? And um, uh, it's uh, it it still has that, you know, it's still kind of like the the economic um, uh, driver in the, uh, uh, in the region. Um, but there is so much, uh, you know, entrepreneurship and, uh, uh, and people that are, you know, really innovative and, and independent are, our local history is like full of those. And so we've been, you know, we've been drawing on that in order to, you know, help, help tell the story. And that's also really helped, you know, the city sort of understand, you know, how we, how we fit into things because they, you know, they, they, they hear all these stories about, you know, like, uh, Richard Florida and the creative class and all, you know, I mean, we know that a lot of that stuff is crap now, but ultimately, you know, um, uh, knowledge workers are, um, uh, the, at least for the moment, they're still very, they're still very mobile. They're still very well paid. Their, um, their, their income is, uh, tends to be more resilient to, uh, to, to fluctuations and, you know, things like getting laid off or fired, you know, that sort of stuff. So, um, the people who are here in our co-working space sort of represent the, you know, the the ideal type of worker that um, our our cities are trying to attract, and so from having them participate in our community, they get a better understanding of what it's going to take to have conversations with them that you know that bring either those types of people here or help them train people that are already in our community to do that type of work. I'm well, I'm listening to you talk and I'm simultaneously do, dangerously doing math and just sort of had an aha moment where I'm thinking about, you know, uh, regions are, are are all around the world are, are chasing tech yep. for all kinds of reasons, you know, promise returns that are exponential and blah, 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 blah. And the truth is, is for every one company, one tech company that sees you know, triple digit percentage growth year over year, there are hundreds, if not more, who never get past, you know, any growth, really, they don't even get off the ground. Oh, it's so true. So it's this number, it's this numbers game, yeah. right? You flip that around and say, I know how to systematically create an ecosystem, a measurable ecosystem that is guaranteed, essentially, 
uh, to grow by 30% year over year so long as we keep putting effort into it. Oh, by the way, we didn't consume any outside resources to do it. We're entirely pulled up by the bootstraps only by the resources that our own community put in. If we can achieve 30% growth year over year with our own resources, imagine what we can do with more time and maybe even a little bit of outside support. So long as, by the way, you stay out of our way. The region that looks at a deal and says, opportunities to grow economic impact by 30% year over year on some measurable basis and is more resilient than a company that can get a better deal in the neighboring city or across the country or whatever it is. Like any region that doesn't see that as valuable isn't, they, their eyes are closed. <laughs> and and what's, um, uh, what's really neat about that in our context is that uh, we have all sorts of people at those uh, government levels who are actively exploring what that looks like with us. But culturally, we're so different that it's so difficult to have those conversations that they take a long time, right? Even if you break down the numbers like that, which, you know, which we have, we're, we're still in the middle even of, you know, building like a shared vocabulary, right? So at the same time, by taking the path that you've taken, one where you don't have that external dependency, like the beginning of your story where you were seeking grants and things like that to support you. You have a sustainable growing operation that can continue to sustain and grow as long as it takes them to get it. It could take them another two years, another five years, another decade. I also, and it sounds like you and I share an optimism, they will figure it out, hopefully in enough time for it to make a difference. But your advantage is you will continue learning along the way. You will continue growing along the way. The seat at the table will always be there, but you don't have to wait for them to get it in order to generate more value. Exactly. That's a beautiful thing. Um, there's just a, a la last couple of things on my mind uh, since I'm now even more curious than I was coming into this about <laughs> getting started in something like this. Now, I'm going to ask this question from sort of two perspectives. One that may be a little bit tricky because I know that you know different parts of the world have different versions of this. But if somebody were starting something brand new, like you were two years ago, and considering exploring something like this, where would they go to find out more about how co-op models work in their particular municipality or region? So um, in most jurisdictions uh, that I'm aware of, the legislation for um, for incorporating as a cooperative is usually held like at the, the state or provincial level. So for instance, in Canada and the U.S., uh, incorporating as a co-op, there's state legislation or provincial legislation that, um, uh, that governs it. And then there's also federal legislation if you want a federally incorporated you know, entity. So kind of, kind of depends, um, there, but that, that's, I mean, that's similar to, um, to other types of incorporation as well. So, uh, so locally what we did was we, you know, we went to, uh, in Ontario, it's the, the, the ministry of, uh, the financial services commission. And, um, and we looked up incorporating a co-op in Ontario and we get, you know, 200 Google results about uh, different forms and paperwork to fill out. And we were, you know, we were immediately like, oh, maybe we made a wrong choice. But uh, <laughs> I went back and I talked to the, to the uh, woman who, uh, who had uh, recommended that, um, Carrie, and, and she basically said, uh, you know, there's an organization that will, uh, that will help with that. And they're in Ontario, it's called the Ontario Cooperative Association. And 
basically their business is in connecting and helping, you know, cooperative businesses uh, flourish. So I, I reached out to them and they have a, uh, what they call a, you know, co-op development, which is kind of like, you know, business development, almost like how an ec- economic development officer would work within a, you know, within a city or a county, you know, that sort of thing. And they listened to what we wanted to do. And then they, uh, they made some recommendations on, on a particular approach. They gave us links to like, they have all sorts of great resources on, you know, checklists that you go through and, um, they said, well, if you want to be this kind of co-op, then the, you know, this is the type of incorporation you need. You know, these are the things that you need to fill out. This is how you, you know, this is how you do it. Basically walking you through the whole process. Once we went through that, we realized that the type of incorporation that we, we, we wanted to do was simple enough that we could do it ourselves. And so we basically, we walked through the form step by step, we filled it out. And basically we, uh, there were a, uh, you know, that group of five that I was talking about earlier that sort of, you know, uh, led the charge. We were the, we were the founding members um, and we all sort of paid our membership first. And that helped, uh, that basically covered the costs of the incorporation. And then that came back and, um, uh, you know, that allowed us to open up the bank account and then start, you know, pulling in the, um, the, the rest of the memberships so that we could basically negotiate a lease from there. Super interesting. I know in Philadelphia, we have a similar thing, uh, called the, I think it's a Philadelphia co-op Alliance or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, but same sort of thing. So I imagine this is the case in most cities. Yeah. So- in most jurisdictions, there will be an organization like this, uh, again, usually at the, the provincial or, or state level, um, that will really be able to, to map out, you know, the, the intent, uh, walk you through all the, the legislative step or the, you know, the paperwork steps that you need to do, um, make sure that you've got your, uh, help you get your I's dotted and your T's crossed, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and basically connect you to other people who can help answer the questions about, about the particulars of running, you know, um, uh, a cooperative. So cool, super helpful. And I hope that's helpful for the other folks that are out there looking to maybe, maybe get started with something like this. I myself am in a slightly different situation. I'm going to put you on the spot, Trevor, and I'm going to ask you what your thoughts are on, let's say, let's say I'm considering taking our incorporated as a for-profit LLC in the state of Pennsylvania business that has been Indy Hall for the better part of 10 years. And at some point in the near future, I'm thinking maybe the things that you're saying here make a whole lot of Mm -hmm. sense. What would be your pitch to someone like me who's kind of on the fence where things are good? Like we already employ a lot of the things that you're describing. Why would I go this extra mile to actually incorporate as a co-op? What do you think? I think it's, I think most importantly, it's because you want to build something that's going to last beyond you, right? At some point, you're either going to want to do other things or you're going to move to other things, right? Or um, circumstances could change that would, uh, would mean that you can't necessarily be the you know, the, the, the indie hall guy. And I know you've done a really good job in separating yourself from a lot of that, but it sounds like there's probably still a lot of DNA parts that are like directly tied to you and setting, uh, setting this up as a, as a co-op basically helps separate the persona from, uh, from the, the corporation. And, uh, for me, that was really important because, you know, things, 
change in our lives, right? I'm only, I'm only in my, uh, my early forties. There's, there's no telling, uh, what could happen. I wanted to build a structure that if, uh, if something like that did happen, then there's, there are other people who can, uh, who can carry on with that. That's an awesome answer. Thank you for that. One last question. And this is a question that we've started asking guests on the show. And that is what is your best day of work? What is a great day of work actually look like and feel like for you? I just had it today, actually. So tell me about it. Um, I have, uh, I got in early this morning. I, uh, I wrote some code for, for a couple hours. I produced one of our podcasts this morning. I had a couple of, uh, uh, you know, everybody started coming in during the day. I, uh, you know, I had some good conversations, some new people. We've started having walk-ins, like just people coming in off the street. And that's an amazing experience. So I got to to share the space uh, with them and, and what we're about and, and that sort of thing. And one of them is coming back in a couple of days to try stuff out. We've actually had started to have pretty good success with our like single day trials. We say, come in for a day and then figure out how you're going to, you know, how you're going to be a member. And that's that started to convert really well for us. I had uh, I had lunch with uh, with a friend that I hadn't seen in a while. Then uh, then I came back and did a little bit more code, and uh, you know now I'm talking to you, and I'm going to go home and and see my kids today, and uh, I can't imagine really a you know a, a better day than what I just went through. I love it, Trevor. This has been so much fun. I've learned a lot, and I'm going to think real hard about what you said about why Indie Hall should be a co-op. And uh, maybe we'll have another conversation about that again in the future. That's awesome, man. I, I also wanted to say that a mutual friend of ours, you uh, you know Jay Tenye? I sure do. <laughs> so um, Jay and I want you to come up and, uh, and visit us for a little bit. Absolutely. And uh, I want to come up and do a winery tour with you guys. That's, a, that's on, my, on my short list of excuses to come up and visit friends. Oh, and the breweries and the distilleries. Oh my God. Oh man. Now I'm excited. All right, man. Uh, if people, if people, uh, I mean, now I think people are going to want to join us for a winery and a brewery tour, but in the meantime, if people want to find out more about what you're working on, Cowork Niagara, where do people find you guys online? Oh, they can find us at coworkniagara.com. Awesome. Cool. Trevor, I hope you have an awesome rest of your so far awesome Wednesday and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Really, uh, really had a blast. So talk to you soon. Awesome. Take it easy, brother. All right, my friends, before you go, I do have one more thing that I want to share with you. And that's something that people have been asking for since the day we launched the People at Work Summit. Because people were asking, this online conference idea sounds great. And I believe you're going to make it a really amazing experience. But I really want something offline. I want to be able to have conversations with people about the things that I'm learning. And I'm not sure if online is going to be able to do it. And the truth is, is we never expected online to create the entire experience. But we love the idea of creating local hubs for the People at Work Summit. So we've put together a little program called the People at Work Summit co-host program. And you can find out more about it by going to peopleatworksummit.com slash co-host. Of course, there's no hyphen in co-host. And see if this is something that might work for you in your community. This could be a great way for you to include your members as well as other people from your local community in the summit and use the conversations that we're bringing to the table to spark some conversations in your own community. That's our goal, to give you a tool that helps bring your community closer together. So if you're interested in being a co-host, find out how to participate. Find out what other communities are participating. You'll see that we have a 
map already with cities all over the world and more going to be coming online over the next few weeks. So the sooner you sign up for that, the sooner we can get your city on the map and the sooner you can start extending discount tickets to your community as well as earning some free tickets for yourself. So check that out. I hope to see you as a co-host. I hope to see you as an attendee. I can't wait to meet you. And until next time, I hope you have an awesome week.